Welcome back to The Wrestling Room and welcome back to our journey into the book of Acts because we're camped on verse 3 right now. I never dreamed when I tackled this challenge of teaching the book of Acts that I would actually camp on verse 3 for as many weeks as I have, but it's building a foundation that will literally uh, help us to understand and appreciate not only the book of Acts, but the whole scripture and your own life, your own Christian journey, your own walk with God in a fresh, new, and powerful way. So stick with me, grab your Bible, grab a pen, grab some paper, we're going to school. I've been in school the last two weeks learning things that I never even dreamed, I never knew about scripture. In all the years I've studied, I've taught new information, new pieces of the puzzle being put together. So I'm going to do my best to communicate that with you today. So let's pray and ask God's blessing on this time, then we'll dive right in. Holy Spirit, we ask you to lead us, guide us, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. Encourage us, strengthen us, O God. May your spirit rise up inside of us. Lord, may we walk away from here stronger than when we came in. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, Gordon Fee, who was a seminary professor at Wheaton College, he was teaching a class called The Life and Teaching of Jesus from the Synoptic Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels. And he had a class of 40 Bible college students, and they'd already dealt with the structure and the background of the book. But before they dove into the ministry and teaching of Jesus, he handed them a three-by-five card and asked them to write one to three words, or a phrase of one to three words, describing what they thought was the absolute essence of the teaching and ministry of Jesus. In other, in other words, what was he all about? If you were going to communicate to somebody what you felt Jesus' life and ministry was all about in just a phrase, what would you say? One to three words. In Latin, we call this the sine qua non, the, which literally means without it, nothing. It's the main ingredient, the absolutely indispensable or essential part. So his question was, what is the sine qua non of Jesus? If you take this away, you take away the main ingredient. Now, all of the students wrote their answers on those cards. And I, before I tell you the answer or their answers, I want to ask you, what do you think is the sine qua non of Jesus? What is that essential ingredient of his ministry and his teaching that was absolutely vital to everything he did, that set the stage for everything he did? What do you think it is? Well, the number one answer of those students by far was love. They believed that love was the main emphasis of Jesus' ministry and his teaching. Number two, they believed was forgiveness. Neither of them was close. <laughs> Love, as a matter of fact, is only mentioned three times in Matthew, Mark, Luke. Love your God, love your neighbor as yourself, and love your enemies. That is it. That's the sum total of Jesus' teaching on love. The answer Let's go to Acts chapter 1, verse 3 to find it. Acts chapter 1, verse 3, here's what it says. This is Jesus in that 40-day boot camp clarifying to the disciples 
the foundational truths they had to know before he was going to hand the baton to them to take it over the finish line. They had to understand these things. So he says to these, to these disciples, these future leaders, 1 verse 3 of Acts, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, getting them ready, and speaking of the things concerning, here it is, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God was Jesus sine qua non, was Jesus' main ingredient. All that he did, all that he taught, all of his decision-making, everything flowed out of his, com his compass, his mission was the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. You remove this topic from Jesus and he essentially vanishes from the pages of scripture. Without it, the kingdom of God, nothing. Now, I want to do a quick review before we elaborate on that, because this teaching is only going to have two points and one application. But I want to set the stage again and review. During that 40-day boot camp, Jesus had already made two things crystal clear. Number one, who he was. He appeared to them alive. They had to know that he had power over death and by having power over death, it proved without a shadow of doubt that he was God. <laughs> he was God. He was the God-man. He was God in flesh. So when Thomas took his fingers and put them into the nail holes in Jesus' hands and stuck his hand into the side where the spear had been rammed, he declared in awestruck wonder, my Lord and my God. And he got it right. They had to know that Jesus was not just a rival of many other gods or prophets. He was the main attraction. He was God. They had to know that. And the person of Jesus is under attack in our culture like never before. I've never seen it. Brothers and sisters, you must not waver on the person of Jesus. You must not water him down. All cults take away from the person of Jesus. Jesus is God in flesh, come out of the grave, conquered death. Lord and Savior, Master and King. And we're going to get to that in a second. So Jesus had to clarify that and make sure they, there was no doubt they were crystal. But number two, they had to know who the enemy was. They thought it was the Romans. Jesus had to tell them, it is your own heart. It isn't external. It is internal. Most of us, and this is the human nature, we want to change our circumstances. Eliminate the neighbor. Eliminate the spouse. Eliminate the child. Eliminate the problem out there. The issue is right here. The issue is here. Our hearts are evil. They're deceitful. They're filled with pride. They're filled with selfishness. <laughs> Jesus had to tell them the Messiah was going to come first, had to come first to suffer as a sacrificial lamb before he could reign as a victorious, powerful lion. Brothers and sisters, we have to be clear. The enemy is here. The enemy is here. The enemy is sin. And as the new church would go forward, they would be preaching a message of repentance Turn from your sin. Not revolt against the Romans. Turn from your sin. 
But thirdly, Jesus had to be clear on what his agenda was, what his plan was, what his program was. And it says he was speaking to them of the things concerning the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. George Eldon Ladd, professor of theology at, at Fuller Theological Seminary, he wrote these searching words. In days like this, he says, fearful men are asking questions. Maybe you've asked some of these questions. What does it all mean? Where are we going? What is the meaning and the goal of human existence? Does mankind have a destiny? Or do we jerk across the stage of time like wooden puppets, only to have the stage, the actors, and the theater itself destroyed? He goes on, in ancient times, poets and seers longed for the ideal society. I think we all do. Hesiod dreamed of the lost golden age, but he saw no brightness in the present, constant care for the morrow, and no hope for the future. Plato pictured an ideal state organized on philosophical principles, but he himself realized that his plan was too idealistic to ever be achieved. Virgil sang of one who would deliver the world from its suffering and by whom the great line of the ages begins anew. And against this backdrop, the Hebrew Christian faith expresses its hope and its future in terms of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Now, if you're like me, I love medieval things, medieval history, medieval movies. Uh, I love swords. I grew up making swords, sword fighting. I loved King Arthur and the, the Knights of the Round Table. I loved King Richard the Lionhearted and read those books, uh, devoured those books. I love the Narnia series and the Lord of the Rings series. That stuff gets me fired up. So the thought of a kingdom is exciting, but... By the way, by the way, I want to I want to say this. There are many of many of many people that I have encountered who believe as Christians that our future in heaven is sitting on a cloud, playing a harp, reading some boring Christian magazine, uh, generally picking our noses. Wrong answer. We are headed towards a kingdom. If you love anything medieval, if you love the thought of king, kingdom, if you understand that, you'll understand it's a far cry from a cloud and a harp and a magazine. That is our future. <laughs> but I want to acknowledge this. The topic of king and kingdom is foreign to us Americans. We've never had a king. In fact, our nation was birthed in revolution against King George of England. We're revolutionaries. <laughs> We pride ourselves in being independent and autonomous and free of the chains of tyranny. And our experience of government is checks and balances where we the people, we determine who's going to rule, right? Who will lead? We want to make sure that no one person is supreme. No one has absolute power and authority. Therefore, we don't have an understanding of an absolute supreme leader. A world where one individual has all the power. Where he can do whatever he likes, with whomever he likes, whenever he likes, with no one to push back against him. We don't know that. We don't have that experience. 
When we encounter a person like that, we call him a dictator. Or today, the word being tossed around is fascist. <laughs> and we become outraged and we struggle for freedom and we rally. But it is precisely what our society pushes against and disdains that is exactly what God claims for himself. Absolute supremacy. Total superiority. Absolute sovereignty. Complete free exercise of his will without any consultation, without any restraint. He answers to no one at any time for anything. That's our God. God is king, and he's setting up a kingdom, brothers and sisters. And I want to develop this thought under two main points and then conclude with one application. So get out your pen and paper. Here we go. Number one, the subject of king and kingdom is the main theme of the whole scripture. The main theme. Now, Jesus is the main character. But the main theme from beginning to end is a king setting up his kingdom. Check this out. In all of scripture, the word kingdom is mentioned 299 times. The word king is mentioned 1,875 times. Combined, king and kingdom, 2,174 times. Do you think this may be a theme in scripture? <laughs> Absolutely it is. Listen to a couple of the verses that bear this out. First Chronicles 21, 29, 11, David says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. He says again, David, Psalm 24, 10, who? He asks the question, who is the king of glory? And then he answers his own question. The Lord of heaven's armies, or the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Isaiah says in Isaiah 33, 22, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. Psalm 103, 19, David finally says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Wow. Friends, listen, Christianity is not a philosophy. It is not a religious theory. It's not a spiritual mindset even. It is a journey. It's an adventure. It's a drama. It's an expedition, a pilgrimage with a person that is moving towards a destination. I listened to a, a testimony of a young man just this week who is the son of a very famous pastor who turned his back on God and, praise God, has come back to the Lord and is now serving Jesus, but he got caught up in so many uh, arguments and so many issues growing up. Friends, what I'm hoping to do in this passage is simplify everything down for you. Christianity isn't about a big philosophy. It's not about theories and all this ethereal baloney. It is a journey. It is a drama with a king headed towards a kingdom. That is it. This king came out of the grave. He's alive. He is ruling from heaven and he's coming back. That is our story. That is what we believe. That is the foundation we build everything on. Period. 
<laughs> Woo! All right. Now, in this journey, in this destination, there are mile markers. We used to drive to Los Angeles. We went to Los Angeles as a kid to go to Disneyland. And uh, the, as you, you drive down I-5, Los Angeles, 789 miles. And it's like, oh, are we there yet? No, not yet. Los Angeles, 485 miles. Oh. And but the, the closer we got, the more signs and the number kept ticking down, ticking down until we're in Bakersfield and boom, over the hill and down into the valley and into Los Angeles we go. In scripture, the mile markers that indicate where we're going and how far it is to our destination are what we call prophecy or prophecies. Here's one of them, Zechariah 14.9. It says, and the Lord will become king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name will be one. He will unite everything. Now, the most dramatic or graphic mile marker or prophecy indicating the destination is in Daniel chapter 2. Grab your Bible. We're going to start in verse 26. And I'm going to read quite a few verses, but we'll give some commentary as we go through. So grab your Bible. This is a powerful prophecy based on a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar has had. And one of the young Hebrew boys that is under his rule, Daniel, has the power given by God to interpret dreams. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has had this dream, and then he's told all of his spiritual advisors, you not only have to interpret the dream, you have to tell me the dream. And they're freaking out because he says, if you don't, I'm going to chop your heads off. You're done. You're finished and your families. So they're saying to him, nobody can do this except the gods. <laughs> well, Daniel says, I happen to know a God who has given me the power to interpret dreams. And he comes before Nebuchadnezzar. And let's pick up the conversation. Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar is speaking to Daniel. And he says this, the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, that was his Assyrian name. Israel, his Jewish name was Daniel. His Assyrian name was Belteshazzar. Says to him, are you able, the king says, to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation. So make it known and interpret it. And Daniel answered before the king. He said, that as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, Conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. He knew, humanly, this is impossible. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Listen, brothers and sisters, in the day and age that we're living, with our faith under attack, with our churches under attack, with our liberties under attack, with the things we believe being under attack, with the scriptures being under attack, with Jesus being under attack, we have to look at men like Daniel and say, God, give me the courage of Daniel. He didn't even hesitate to say to the, the most powerful man on the planet, there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He was not afraid. He was not ashamed. Friends, may God give us the heart and the spirit of Daniel. The heart and spirit of Daniel. It says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has made known to the King Nebuchadnezzar, to King Nebuchadnezzar. And here's very key. Four times this phrase will appear. He has made known what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream. And the visions in your mind while on your bed. 
Verse 29, as for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. As for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom that resides in me more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. And here it is. You, O king, were looking and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large, it was a, of extraordinary splendor. It was standing in front of you and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breasts and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron and feet, partly of iron, partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and gold were crushed all at the same time, became like chaff, from the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that, this is key, so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we shall tell its interpretation before the king. <laughs> and do you think Nebuchadnezzar, uh, do you think he had Nebuchadnezzar's attention? You better believe it. His jaw was on the ground. Who is this? He just nailed my dream from last night. Verbatim. Every detail. So Daniel's going to launch into the interpretation. I'm going to give you the main points because there's a lot of detail. He says this in verse 37. You, O king, are the king of kings, small k's, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. In the scripture, the word kingdom doesn't firstly indicate a realm or a region or even a people over which you rule. It indicates divine sovereignty to rule. Understand this. The God of heaven who Daniel was talking about is the source. He is the, the mother tree. He is the headwaters. He is the all-powerful source of authority. Every bit of authority flows out of God. Nebuchadnezzar had his authority because God gave it to him. No authority given to anybody on this planet comes anywhere but from God. Even those who get authority from Satan, which he can give authority, but that authority has been given to him by God and flows from Satan to others. We must understand this. All authority originates with God. All authority. And when we talk about a kingdom, it means sovereign authority to rule, first and foremost. So he says, you, small k, king of kings, whom God of heaven has given the kingdom and power and strength and the glory. And whereas the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and caused you to rule over them. And you are the head of gold, Babylon. After you, there will arise another kingdom. This is the Medes and the Persians, inferior to you. Then another kingdom of bronze. We know that is Greece. In Daniel's chap Daniel chapter 7 and 8, this 
vision is built upon. More details are added. And God specifically tells by name what countries would come after Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Foretells them by name. Fascinating. Verse 40, and there will be a fourth kingdom. That would be Rome in 63 BC. As strong as iron, and inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. Now, I'm going to go forward, and let's go to verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will be not left for another people. In other words, it's the last kingdom. There won't be another coming. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw the stone, or a stone, was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel, gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is God of gods and a Lord of kings and a reveal of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Wow. So let me ask this question. What or who is the stone cut out without hands? That almost sounds like self-existence. Nobody cut out the stone. It is self-existent. Well, if you go back to Genesis and you trace the theme of stone or rock all the way through the Old Testament, you'll find it is typical. It is a symbol of, a type of Jesus. This passage is talking about the stone, the rock, who is Jesus. Now, how do I know that? Go to Daniel chapter 7. Beyond the fact that it has this typology all the way through the Old Testament, go to Daniel chapter 7 and we'll see who he's talking about. Verses 13 and 14. Daniel's given another vision. Again, it builds on the vision in chapter 2. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Who called himself a son of man? Jesus did. And he came up to the ancient of days, a term for the Father, and was presented before him, and to him the Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Brothers and sisters, we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about a future king. We're talking about a future kingdom. I want you to understand 
that the New Testament is rooted and grounded in the prophecies and the passages of the Old Testament. The two fit together perfectly. You cannot separate the two of them and make any sense out of either one of them. The New Testament's roots are deep in the soil of the Old Testament, and the Old Testament's mysteries are revealed in the passages of the New Testament and will continue to be revealed over time. Mystery in the scripture doesn't mean something deep that we can't understand. It means the curtain continues to be pulled back for us to see more. God is revealing bits and pieces of his plan in phases, pulling the curtain back. And this is part of a mystery that God is revealing through these visions. So the Old Testament is part and parcel. The whole theme of the Bible, the scripture, is a king and a kingdom. A king and a kingdom. Now, number two, the subject of king and kingdom is not only the topic of the whole Bible, but of course, it is the main theme in the teaching of Jesus. In the teaching of Jesus. If you miss this, you miss Jesus altogether. It's that essential. You miss Jesus. Now, I just want to say this. Most people see Jesus as a gentle quiet, almost Mr. Rogers-like individual who goes about patting small children on the head, teaching about love, which he does, standing in an airport handing out daisies and saying, God bless you. Listen, some of those nuances might be true of Jesus, but that caricature of him or anything like it is far, far, far from the truth. We don't have a clear vision of Jesus so frequently because many of us don't really spend time with Jesus. We don't spend time in his word. We get little flyby snippets of Jesus, like running through the kitchen and sticking our hand in the cookie jar and grabbing just a snippet of Jesus or just a little, you know, mini, mini devotional to kind of get our spirit fired up for the day. But we don't spend time in the scripture being taught by the Holy Spirit teaching us who Jesus is. So we don't know him. Most Christians do not know Jesus. Not really. And I will be the first to admit, I have been that way and am trying to move away from that. Recently, I've been spending time listening, mostly listening through my phone and Bluetooth in my car to bulk, bulk passages of scripture going through the whole book of Matthew, the whole book of Mark, driving up the freeway to a coffee stand, miles up, turning around and coming back, and during the whole time just listening to Scripture. And I'm starting to realize the Jesus that I thought I knew is not the Jesus of the Bible. He is very different than what I thought. But it's because I'm spending time with him. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to his word. And as I hear the words of scripture read to me, I'm walking with him in the theater of my mind. I'm walking with him. I'm observing him. I'm watching him interact with, with those who are sick. I'm watching him interact with those who are demon-possessed. I'm watching him interact with the religious leaders. I'm watching him interact with his disciples. And Jesus is very different than what I thought he was. His message, when I found out in this study this past two weeks that his main message was the kingdom of God, it was a complete wake-up call to me. I had no idea. I had no idea. I would have got that test wrong, that three-letter, three-by-five test 
I would have blown, I would, I would have failed it miserably. So I want to look at this. I want to take a, a, a walk with you, with Jesus, through just the book of Matthew predominantly. Here's what, it is, what I discovered as it pertains to Jesus and the kingdom of God. Matthew 2.2. 2. The wise men or the magi and all their entourage came to Israel and came to Jerusalem looking for not a philosopher, not a teacher, not a guru, but a king. They knew that the scriptures foretold a king. They came looking for a king and it turned everything, everything went crazy. King Herod was all, all, all stirred up because he was the king at that point. Who's this rival? Matthew 3 verse 2. Crazy man John the Baptist erupts on the scene like a Tasmanian devil into the Jewish preaching scene, thundering this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was his message. Everything else that he taught was summarized by that message. Jesus, as he appears on the scene, goes into the, to the wilderness for 40 days and he's tempted by the devil. And temptation number two is what? I will offer you the kingdoms of this world. The devil knows the scriptures. He knew Daniel chapter 2. He knew Daniel chapter 7. He knows that Jesus will eventually be king over everything. He knows it. Doesn't want to admit it. Doesn't want to look it in the face. But he knows scripture. He has some idea. But he's trying to offer Jesus the kingdom before sin is dealt with. Before the anarchy of the heart is dealt with. Remember this, brothers and sisters, the right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. The right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. And the enemy, the wrong person, was offering the right thing at the wrong time, and it was the wrong thing, and Jesus said, no thank you. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Now Jesus joins John the Baptist on the preaching circuit in Israel, and what is his message? The very first words out of his mouth as he begins to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's Jesus' inaugural message. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Not only is that his, his inaugural message, that encapsulates everything Jesus would teach. All his other teachings would be tucked in around and would flow out of the message of repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was his theme. That was his elevator pitch. That was, in a nutshell, the summary of his teaching and his ministry encapsulated. Wow. So let's move on. Matthew 9:23 and 9 or 4 verse 23 and 9:35 it says Jesus was going about in all of Galilee teaching in their synagogues and what was he teaching? The gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Then we go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and the first statement in his first published message <laughs> is this, blessed are the poor in spirit, Matthew 5, verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember, kingdom means sovereign authority. So what is Jesus saying? Blessed are those who are humble, poor in spirit, for theirs is the sovereign authority of heaven. To the humble, to the poor in spirit, God will give sovereign authority. 
God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up. Matthew 5.10, Jesus continues teaching, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Sovereign authority of heaven belongs to those who are persecuted for and with Jesus. And as we study the book of Acts, we're going to see Stephen, the first martyr. And the thing that strikes you about him is the incredible composure and the authority of heaven, the glory of heaven that radiates out from him, even as the rocks came raining down to crush his body. The authority of heaven to those who are persecuted. Brothers and sisters, I don't know how far away we are from this in our own country, but just understand that if you are persecuted for Jesus' sake, the authority of heaven will be given to you. Then he taught them how to pray. Matthew 6, verse 9, Your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. The first thing that arises in his teaching on prayer is, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your, na your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It shapes and forms all of our praying. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Lord, may the kingdom of heaven, may your kingdom authority reside in my heart. May your kingdom authority, may submission to your authority reside in my wife's heart, in my kids' hearts, in, the, in our city, in our nation. Praying that God's kingdom, God's authority will reign on earth as it is in heaven. And then when Jesus in Matthew 10, 7 sent his disciples out on their virgin outreach, he said, as you go, announce this. The word is preach, but it literally means proclaim or announce. It's like a herald with a trumpet. They walk into the city square. He raises his trumpet, and everyone looks. What's going on? And an announcement is made. What is the announcement? It's one phrase. <laughs> Here's what it is. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He essentially said, you're going to be like Paul Revere. You go through all the towns, through all the countryside. You have one message. It's not the British are coming. It's the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is your message. Wow. Hear ye, hear ye. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 13. Jesus begins to tell parables. And six times in just a short period of time in Matthew 13 and 14, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like, and gives an illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like six times. In Matthew alone, brothers and sisters, Jesus refers to the kingdom of heaven or to a kingdom, the kingdom of God, or to a kingdom in some aspect 54 times. 54 just in the book of Matthew. Just in the book of Matthew. In the book of Acts, eight times. The kingdom is mentioned eight times. A king is mentioned 17 times. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God was Jesus sine qua non. His main ingredient, all that he did, all that he taught, all of his decision making, his compass, his mission, it all flowed out of this short phrase, the kingdom of heaven. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Without it, nothing. 
That was Jesus' message. So I want to end with one verse, with two verses, actually. Matthew 6, 33, Jesus teaches this. He says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. Seek first the kingdom. I'm going to ask you, what is your priority? How do you live your life? What is your mission statement? What do you filter all your decisions through? How do you spend your money? How do you spend your time? Is the filter, is the filter the kingdom of God? Jesus said to his disciples, don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about storing up money here. It's going to be lost if it stays here. Store it up in heaven. He talks about greed. He talks about anxiety and the, anxi and the greed that comes from anxiety. He says, I know you need all those things. I will take care of you. You seek first the kingdom. You use your money. You use your time. You use your energy. You use your personality. You use your gifts. You use your home. You use your vehicles. You use everything I've given you to build the kingdom. I'll take care of everything else. It's like enrolling in the army. You just show up. They even shave your head, but they supply everything, but you show up to serve. That is the kingdom of God. That is the kingdom of God. That is Jesus' instruction to us. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, his character, and all these other things will be added to you. He'll take care of them. We get so caught up taking care of those ourselves and we neglect the kingdom or throw it a bone here and there. Guys, it's too late for that. We are too far into history to keep living that way. Jesus is coming. Now, here's the comfort. After he said, seek first the kingdom, he tacked on in the book of Luke, he added another verse. He says this, do not fear, little flock, because they're thinking, I've got to take care of myself. I can't trust you to do that. And he says, don't fear. You can trust me. Do not fear, little flock. Your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. To give you the kingdom. Our God, our King, is not a taker. He's a giver. Why do we resist dictators? Why do we resist kings and leaders who have too much power? Because out of selfishness and pride, they are takers. Total power, excuse me, power pollutes. Absolute power pollutes absolutely. What, what is the phrase? Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's the phrase. And what do we know of one world leaders who have all the power? They're takers. They take, they suck, they squeeze. But not our God, because he's a giver. And he says to you, you can trust me. You put my kingdom first. You put my kingdom first. I'll take care of everything you need now. And then it's going to be my delight to give you the kingdom that I've purchased with my blood, that I've fought for, I will give it to you. Brothers and sisters, our future is so bright. Our future is so bright, but we've got to understand that what Jesus' priority is, the kingdom, it's got to be our priority. Our lives are too short to be wasted on any other kingdom, building any other kingdom. 
It's my final application, my final thought for you. My prayer is that you will mull this, you will wrestle with this, and allow God to change your heart and let, and let Jesus sine qua non become your sine qua non. That if someone asks, what are you all about? The answer would be, I'm all about God's kingdom. I'm all about God's kingdom. Without it, nothing. This is my whole life, my whole focus, building God's kingdom. Jesus, that's my prayer. May that be true of me. May that be true of my brothers and my sisters who are watching. God, give us the strength, the wisdom to follow our great leader, the Lord Jesus Christ, King Jesus. I pray it in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We will see you next week. Come with your Bible. We're going to continue to develop the book of Acts. And it's, it's an exciting journey. So God bless you. God bless your week. Bye-bye for now.